the sermon text for today is Genesis 11, verses 10 through 32. And the New Testament reading is quite long. It is Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 53. I do not have uh, the text prepared for the screen this morning, as is my custom. You'll have to open your Bibles up or turn to it on your phones or however it is that you get to the text of Scripture. Uh, The New Testament reading is so long, I just didn't bother to put it up here. So, follow along with me in your your Bibles. Uh, Children, can you still hear me? They they were just up here. Maybe all of them ran off uh, over into the library area. Listen to the sermon also. One of my greatest joys is to have a, a rather young child come up to me after the sermon and just say, look at my notes, you know. <laughs> uh, they're capable of listening, uh, parents, and so continue to encourage them to do that and to take notes on the sermon. The sermon is not only for the adults in the room, but also for the children. Uh, we're trying to cha- train up our children, even teaching them how to listen to the preaching of God's Word. Hear now the Word of God, Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arkpikshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arkpikshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arkpikshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arkpikshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And when Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Sureg, Sereg rather. And Reu lived after he fathered Sarug 207 years, and had other sons and daughters. When Sarug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sarug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years, and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years, and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughters of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were two hundred and five years, and Terah died in Haran." Now let us turn to Acts chapter 7, and we will read verses 1 through 52. I wanted to read this text, though it is long in its entirety, to show you how the early Christians, the early church, preached the gospel. It's not the way that you and I would think were to preach the gospel. They told the story of the history of God's redemptive work, uh, beginning even in the days of Abraham. 
This is the preaching of Stephen. He, is, he was one of those original deacons, remember. He was one of the original seven appointed to wait upon tables uh, to care for the widows uh, in the early days of the church there in Jerusalem. And so Stephen had an opportunity to preach the gospel before the Jewish people. And here is what he said, Acts chapter 7, verse 1. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, that is Ur of the Chaldeans, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Uh, then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living, that is the land of Canaan, Israel, uh, then at the time of this preaching. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them four hundred years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. Of course, he is here referring to Egypt and uh, the captivity of the Jewish people there in Egypt and the Exodus and he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, seventy-five persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died." He and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hammer in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born. And he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was, wrong, who, who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler over us and a judge? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness at Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, 
There came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt, this Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for forty years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your fathers, from your brothers, rather. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the hosts of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephan, the images that you made to worship. And I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he, spoke, he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they disposed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, Stephen says, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Stephen is here speaking of Jesus the Christ. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May the Lord bless the preaching of the scriptures today. Brothers and sisters, the feel of the book of Genesis, which we are slowly studying through, is about to change drastically. Uh, we've been moving pretty methodically, especially through chapters 1 through 3, a little bit more quickly through chapters 4 through 
11, but, but the feel of the book is about to tr change drastically to the point where I think it'll feel as if it's a different book altogether. Uh, notice that a new section begins in 1127 with that very important phrase, these are the generations of, and in this instance it says, Terah. These are the generations of Terah. Remember that that phrase um, marks the beginning of a new section of the book of Genesis, and there are ten major sections in this book. Now, notice this, Genesis 11.27, all the way to Genesis 25.11 are about Abraham. After that, large sections of Genesis will be devoted to the lives of Abraham's descendants, specifically Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Uh, these large narratives which center upon the lives of uh, one individual are very different from what we have encountered so far in uh, the book of Genesis, I think you would agree. And what have we encountered so far in the book of Genesis? Well, in chapters 1 and 2, we saw a description of the creation of the heavens and the earth, each from a different vantage point. Chapter 3 described the fall of man and the consequence of sin. Uh, there we also heard the very first promise of the gospel. God, by His mercy and grace, would provide a Savior from among the offspring of Eve, we were told. And then in chapters 4 through 11, we found a mixture of genealogies and stories, short stories, nowhere near as long as the ones we're about to encounter uh, as we consider the life of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. But there was this combination of genealogies, lists of names, and uh, short stories, the story of the flood, the story of the Tower of Babel. Uh, the story of the flood and the story of the Tower of Babel tell us a lot about our condition after our fall into sin. They're very important little stories, aren't they? I hope, I hope you were convinced of that as we considered them. They, they really show us our condition now that we have fallen into sin. Instead of living in obedience to God for the advancement of the kingdom of God upon the earth, man is prone to live instead for himself, for his own pleasure, and for his own glory, independent of the God who made him. That is what the story of the flood and the story of the Tower of Babel revealed to us and pressed upon us. This is our tendency. This is our fallen condition. These little stories are very important for they reveal man's true character in his fallen state. But the genealogies are also very important, though they are difficult to read, even for me, as you saw just a bit ago. They're very important, for they reveal God's grace. That might not be apparent upon first reading, but upon closer examination, we see that is what is being revealed in these genealogies. God's grace is being revealed. They show that God was faithful to do what He said He would do. God announced in the presence of Adam and Eve that one would arise from amongst the offspring of Eve to crush the head of the serpent who had deceived them. This was a wonderful announcement, a wonderful promise given to Adam and to Eve. It was the first declaration of the gospel. Despite man's fall into sin and despite man's eagerness to live independent of God and in rebellion against Him, God, by His grace, was faithful to preserve a people for Himself in the world. That is what these genealogies reveal to us. In Genesis chapters 4 through 11, we observe on the one hand the proliferation of an unrighteous line, of a wicked line. But we also see the preservation of 
a righteous line in the world. Both lines come from Adam and Eve physically speaking, but one line belongs to the evil one, that is to the serpent, whereas the other line belongs to God. God, by His grace, kept a people for Himself in the line of Abel, in the line of Seth, in the line of Enoch, and in the line of Noah, just to highlight a few of the more prominent figures in uh, these genealogies. And of Noah's three sons, remember them, two were blessed and one was cursed after the flood. Shem was blessed of God. Shem bore the name of God. Shem would preserve the worship of God. Through Shem, the prophets would speak. Shem was blessed of God. Japheth would find the blessing of God in the tents of Shem, in Shem, and in union with Shem. But Canaan, who was the son of Ham, was cursed. This all transpired after the flood. All of this has been said in previous sermons, and so it is review for you, and I will refrain from being too repetitive from this time forward. But I do want to be sure that you get it before we move on to the consideration of the lives of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. I'm concerned that you get what is going on here in uh, the beginning of the book of Genesis. We see that a story is beginning to unfold, isn't it? A story is, is being told. Foundations are being laid for a story, and it is the story of our creation, it is the story of our fall, and it is the story of our redemption in Christ Jesus. That is the story that is beginning to develop even in these earliest chapters of, of the book of Genesis. It is the story of our creation, fall, and redemption. And, and what do we mean when we say redemption? What are we talking about here when we say redemption? What does our redemption involve? I think typically we assume that it refers to the forgiveness of our sins, that is, our personal salvation in Jesus the Christ, received by the grace of God and through faith. And indeed, that is a part of it, of course. But I want you to recognize that the story of redemption is bigger than that. The story of redemption that is told in the pages of Holy Scripture from Genesis 3.15 on to the very end of the book of Revelation, it's bigger than your personal salvation in Christ Jesus. Not only did Christ live and die and rise again to earn your personal salvation, but to secure by His obedient life and His sacrificial death an eternal kingdom to be presented to the Father at the end of the age. If we want to talk about the redemption that is found in Christ Jesus, and if we want to do justice to the scope of it, to the magnitude of it, it goes beyond your personal forgiveness in Christ Jesus through His shed blood. But instead we see, from Genesis to Revelation, this story being told, it's about the establishment of God's kingdom, which Christ will earn, which He has earned, which He will bring to a consummation, and at the end of the age that He will hand over to God the Father so that in all things He might receive the glory. It is a story of the consummation of the kingdom of God. And what is a kingdom? What elements must be in place to have a kingdom? The answer is simple, and it is threefold. To have a kingdom, you must have three things. People, you must have a land, and you must have a king. A kingdom is not fully established if any one of these things is lacking. You must have people, you must have a land, and you must have a king. 
And with that in mind, remember that Adam's task in the garden was to advance God's kingdom. Concerning people, Adam and Eve were to multiply, weren't they? They were to fill the earth with their descendants. They were to have children who would be citizens of God's kingdom. Concerning land, Adam was to guard the garden and he was to push out its boundaries until it filled the entire earth. All the earth was to be God's kingdom in the beginning. And concerning the king, Adam was to do all of his work living in perpetual obedience to the God who made him the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Adam's task was to advance the kingdom of God until it filled the earth, and this is what he so miserably failed to do. He rebelled, didn't he? The kingdom was offered to Adam, but it was rejected by him. Regarding the king, Adam obeyed the voice of another ruler. Regarding the land, Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden of God. And regarding the people, no longer were they friends of God, but enemies instead. Indeed, all of the posterity of Adam born into this world are children of wrath by nature, according to the scriptures. And so we see that the kingdom of God was not established by Adam and by Eve and by their descendants. Instead, another kingdom slipped in. It's the kingdom of darkness. It's the kingdom of the evil one. And so when we speak of the story of redemption that is told in the pages of Holy Scripture, it is important for us to remember that it involves not only your personal salvation and the forgiveness of your personal sins, but also the establishment of God's kingdom. The story of redemption that is told in the Bible is about God, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, rescuing fallen and rebellious sinners from the kingdom of darkness and bringing them safely into His glorious kingdom, which will one day fill the earth all through the work of the Christ, the Messiah, the promised seed of the woman. This is the story that is emerging, that is developing here in the earliest chapters of the book of Genesis. This story of the kingdom of God, its inauguration and its consummation does not begin in Matthew chapter 1. It begins instead in Genesis chapter 3, and from there it develops. In Genesis 11.10, we read the words, These are the generations of Shem. This is the fifth time the phrase, These are the generations of, has appeared in, in the book of Genesis. So this marks the beginning of the fifth major section of the book of Genesis after the prologue or the introduction. There are ten major sections after that prologue or introduction, and this marks the beginning of the fifth of those major sections. Uh, remember that in Genesis 2.4, we read, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, and the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. In Genesis 5.1, we read, This is the book of the generations of Adam when God created man. He made him in the likeness of God. In Genesis 6.9, we read, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. In Genesis 10.1, we read, These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. And now in Genesis 11.10, we read, These are the generations of Shem. And so what a marvelous thing it is for us to consider that God preserved a people for Himself in a world that was so very corrupt. The, this righteous line was preserved by God through all manner of corruption. 
I want for you to think back for a moment upon the flood narrative and also upon the story of the Tower of Babel. And I want for you to be amazed that this righteous line was preserved by God through all of that corruption, through all of that wickedness. God kept a people for himself in the world. He did not allow for this righteous line that came from the seed of the woman to be snuffed out. This line was preserved through Adam, Seth, Enoch, Noah, and Shem, as well as others. The descendants of Shem were already listed for us in Genesis 10, alongside the descendants of Ham and Japheth. Do you remember that in Genesis 10, we encountered a kind of genealogy um, when the sons of Shem, Ham, and Japheth were all listed for us there. Why then are the sons of Shem, the descendants of Shem, listed for us again here in 11.10 and following? Why the repetition? It is to show that God was faithful to fulfill His promises concerning Shem that were delivered through the blessing that Noah pronounced upon him. Uh, this is why Shem again is emphasized. This is why his descendants are again set before us, but in a slightly different way than they were presented to us in Genesis 10. Do you remember what Noah said concerning his sons after that episode where he got drunk with wine and lay naked in his tent? And some of his, one of his sons acted corruptly and the others honored his, their father. He, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. The descendants of Shem would have the Lord as their God. And the genealogy of Genesis 11, 10 through following shows that that would come to pass, that God brought that to pass. The descendants of Shem did indeed have the Lord as their God. They worshipped Him at the altar. They preserved His promises. And there were prophets among them, as we will see. God spoke through some of the descendants of Shem. Now, if you remember the genealogy of Shem in Genesis 10... Uh, it did not make this clear. It did not get to that righteous line. It did not take us there. There the line in Genesis 10 um, took us in a different direction. Remember that Shem was traced to that figure named Eber. And it's from Eber that the Hebrew people are named. They are the Eberus, the Hebrews. Remember that? Um, it, it took us to Eber. But then when we came to Eber, it took us to one of Eber's sons named Yoktan. And from Yoktan to 13 sons whose names are very unfamiliar to us. We don't really recognize them. That's where the genealogy of Shem in Genesis 10 took us. To Eber, from Eber to Yoktan, and from Yoktan to 13 names that we do not really recognize. But in Genesis 11, the genealogy of Shem is traced, but in a different direction. Again, we come to that very important figure, Eber, which is where the Hebrews get their name. But this time, through Eber's other son, named Peleg. And by the end of this genealogy in Genesis 11, we come not to unfamiliar names, but to familiar ones. Just look at verse 26, where we read these words. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered who? Abram. I hope that name is familiar to you. He fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. 
The name Abram should be familiar to you, and if it is not, maybe it will be if I tell you this. Abram will later be called Abraham. His name will be changed. His descendants, their name should also be familiar to you. They are Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And from Joseph, we see that through his, the deliverance he provided in Egypt, and from his brothers, the, the Israelite nation would eventually come. They were the ones who would be called out of Egypt and brought eventually into the promised land, the land of Canaan, where the Canaanites would be destroyed, remember the sons of Ham, and through whom the Japhethites would eventually find their blessing, Gentiles, you and me, finding our blessing by being grafted in to Old Covenant Israel. Do you, do you see the story that is being, beginning to develop here in the book of Genesis? It's a marvelous thing. God was faithful to preserve to preserve a righteous line in all of those ages from Adam to Abraham, though the earth grew exceedingly corrupt. See, therefore, that the genealogy of Shem in Genesis eleven ten and following completes the line from Adam to father Abraham. That is what it does. Here is why we return to Shem and to his descendants, because now we see how we get from Shem all the way to father Abraham. In verse 27, we again encounter the phrase, these are the generations of, and so this is the sixth occurrence of this phrase. This, therefore, marks the beginning of the sixth major section of the book of Genesis, and as I already said, it's a very big section. It runs for a very long time. Instead of moving quickly from one figure to the next, or instead of just encountering names in a list, rapid-fire succession, we're going to spend a long time talking about this figure, Abram who will later become Abraham. This section runs all the way until 2512, where we read, these are the generations of Ishmael. So everything from 1127 to 2512 is about Abraham. Terah was the father of three sons, Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. We are told that Haran was the father of Lot, and that Haran died before his father did when the family lived in Ur of the Chaldeans, that is in southern Babylonia. This is located near the Euphrates River in the southern part of the Babylonian kingdom in what is today Iraq. In verse 29, we read that Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. That is Genesis 11.29. And all of this is important because it does set the stage for the narrative that follows. Some of these figures will be very important to us. In verse 31, we learn that Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran his grandson and Sarai his daughter-in-law his son Abram's wife and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Can you see it on the map, therefore? They started out in Ur of the Chaldeans in southern Babylon. Notice the similarity between the name Babylon and the story of the tower of that city, Babel. It's important to notice. They began there, and then they began to journey up north to the very top of the map there to Haran, which it's a bit cut off, so you can't read the name entirely, but it's that city to the furthest north. And their intent was to then drop back down to the south and to come into Canaan, into Israel, as we know it today. But when they got to Haran, they stayed there for a time. They settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in that place up in Haran. 
And so these characters take center stage in our story. Terah, his son Abram, Abram's wife Sarai, and also Abram's nephew, whose name is Lot. These four left Ur of the Chaldeans, and they journeyed to the north and to the west with the intent of going down into the land of Canaan, but they remained in Haran for a time. Now, let me say a few things about this section, this section of the book of Genesis. One, I want for you to notice that this passage does not reveal why these four left Ur of the Chaldeans to sojourn to the land of Canaan. This passage does not reveal why they did it, but the next passage does. In Genesis 12, verse 1, we will read these words. Now the Lord said to Abram, I think a better translation would be, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is such an important text, brothers and sisters. It's so central to our understanding of the rest of Scripture. But notice here that the reason these four left Ur of the Chaldeans is because the Lord had appeared to Abram. The Lord came to Abram and said, leave your hometown, leave where it was that you grew up, leave this place and go to a land that I will show you. And if you remember, this is how Stephen began his sermon in Acts chapter 7. He says this is the proper interpretation because in his words, brothers and fathers, hear me, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when? When he was in Mesopotamia, that is in Ur of the Chaldeans, the southern part of the Babylonian Empire, before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into that land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. These people left Ur of the Chaldeans because God called them out of that place. He appeared to them and said, I am going to pull you out of this place and I am going to, through you, establish a nation, a kingdom, mind you, that belong uniquely to me. I'm going to take you and turn you into a large multitude of people. I'm going to set you down in your own land where I will be king over you. I'm going to establish a kingdom from you. Two, notice that the land they left was prosperous and pagan. Uh, this is not necessarily clear from the text itself, but archaeological evidence helps us to understand that Ur of the Chaldeans was a very prosperous place. It was a very wealthy place. Abram probably lived quite well there in that place. He had a comfortable existence. We also know that it was pagan, and by that I simply mean that this people, this culture, they worshipped false gods. There was there in that place a very uh, large ziggurat that we talked about, probably not unlike the one that the people who lived in Babel were trying to build when they wanted to build that tower that reached to the heavens. There uh, they were devoted to false worship, to, to idolatry. This was the culture that Abram lived in. This was the culture that Terah was raising his family in. And God said to them, come out of it. Come out of it and be my people. Come out of it and I'll bring you into your own land. This culture, the culture of Ur, was not all that different from the culture of Babel, which we read of earlier. The people of this land worshipped false gods. They built not for the glory of God, but for their own glory, and they prospered, worldly speaking, 
this was the land that Abram was called to leave. Three, look with me at verse 30, where we read, Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. It's stated so succinctly there, isn't it? She was barren and she had no child. Uh, That's a difficult thing for anyone to deal with. Even today, I think it would have been even more difficult in in olden times where uh, your children would be expected to care for you in in your old age, uh, uh, where the whole economy was different. You needed children to to work uh, with the family in order to support you. Some of that is still true today, but maybe not with such intensity as it was back in olden times. Sarah was barren. And this will become a major theme throughout the rest of the book of Genesis. In fact, uh, we will learn that not only was Sarah barren, but also Rachel, the wife of Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was also barren. It will become a major theme in the book of Genesis, and for good reason, because the scriptures will show that our God is able to overcome even barrenness to produce a people for himself according to his will. And I want you to make just three observations in light of what I have just said um, about the scriptures telling the story of the establishment of the kingdom of God. In order for God's kingdom to be established, what three elements need to be in place? God must rule as king over a people who possess a land, and there must, of course, be a multitude of people in order for there to be a kingdom. And with that in mind, I want you to consider what we have been told even in this little short portion of Scripture. Uh, There is a problem in every one of these areas. God's kingdom is not established, for He is not honored as king in Ur of the Chaldeans. Someone else is honored as Lord. False gods are worshipped. Glory is not given to the God of heaven, but glory is given uh, to another. He is not honored as king in that place. And among those who do honor him as Lord and God, they do not have their own land, but they are sojourners in a pagan land. And when it comes to the multiplication of God's people, we see that Sarai is barren. She is without child, and it does not look as if she's going to be able to have a child ever. Uh, This is the condition. So there are problems, three problems uh, that correspond to this notion of kingdom. And what will the rest of the book of Genesis and the rest of the Old Testament and indeed the New Testament itself on into the book of Revelation show us? Except for that God is able to establish His kingdom against all odds. He is able to draw a people to Himself, a people who will bow the knee and say, Jesus is Lord, and who will live for the glory of the God of heaven. He is able to do that despite our natural enmity against Him. He is able to overcome our barrenness. He's able to make our hearts alive in Christ Jesus. He was able to do it physically speaking for Sarai, because eventually Isaac would be born, through whom the Israelite people would come. And He is able to bring us safely into the land. This He did in a typological sense with the nation of Israel as they entered in and miraculously drove out the pagans of that land, the Canaanites. There, the kingdom of God was prefigured in that place. But what do we know from the pages of Holy Scripture? God's objective was never to give His people a sliver of land in Palestine, but rather God's 
purpose in the very beginning was that Adam would fill the entire earth with the kingdom. And when we come to the very last pages of Holy Scripture, the, the book of Revelation, we see that is what Christ has accomplished. In the end, God's kingdom will fill all. We will have our land. Though we do not have it now, we are sojourners and exiles. We will have our land. God will be king. His glory will fill all. He will bring His people safely home and into His land, namely the earth, which He created in the beginning to be a habitation for Him to dwell with His holy people. What a glorious thing this is. Do you see the story beginning to develop, brothers and sisters? There is a story that is being told, the story of our creation, our fall, and our redemption in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me make just a few points of application from this text before we close. If you are in Christ Jesus, please understand that you have been called out of the world to walk in obedience to God as King. Just as Abram was called to leave Ur of the Chaldeans, that pagan and corrupt culture, to walk holy before the Lord, so too you have been called out of the world to walk in obedience to God as King. And I ask you this question, is it evident by observing your life that God is your Lord and King? Is it evident? Is your life different from the lives of those around you who do not have faith in Christ and who do not belong to God? Is it evident by the way that you think? Is it evident by the way that you speak? Is it evident by the things that you do? If you belong to Christ, if He is Lord, then He ought to be truly Lord, King of your life. We ought to be found living in obedience to Him and for His glory. And if you are in Christ, it is because you have been made alive in Him. You have been made alive in Him. He breathed life into your soul where there was once only spiritual barrenness. There was no life at all and no hope for life. But Christ, by the work of the Holy Spirit and by His Word, breathed life into you. He gave you new birth by His grace. And I wonder, are you amazed at the grace of God? Are you grateful? Or do you stand with pride in your heart saying, I am what I am today because of of me, because of my wisdom, because of my spirituality, because of my goodness. Now, the scriptures are quite clear that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are by nature children of wrath. We are hopelessly lost in this world. And were it not for the grace of God and His ability to breathe life where there is only death, to shine light where there is only darkness, we would be hopeless in this world. Are you amazed at the grace of God? Are you grateful that He has drawn you to Himself? Just as He called Abram out of, the Ur, out of Ur of the Chaldeans, He has called you to Himself by His mercy and grace. We should be grateful for these things, brothers and sisters. We should stand in awe of the grace of God. And if you are in Christ, you are now a citizen of God's kingdom, along with others who have faith in His name. Do you realize this? That, that you though you might be a citizen in this world of the United States of America, which is a blessed thing all on its own, you are a citizen also of a different kingdom. You are a citizen of the kingdom of God. And as you look around you on the, yourself on this Lord's Day, uh, what a blessing it is to see that you are surrounded by fellow citizens, fellow so, uh, sojourners, brothers and sisters in Christ. And I ask you this, do you cherish the fellowship of the saints? Do you cherish it? That the Lord has blessed us not only to walk with Him in this world, but to walk with Him 
surrounded by others who have Christ Jesus as Lord. What a blessing this is, brothers and sisters, and may we never forget, may we never forget it. May we rejoice in the fellowship of the saints. With this, I would ask you now to bow together with me for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is so rich. Uh, God, we thank you that the gospel was preached even to Adam and Eve, and that we have it now um, in a much more full sense now that the Christ has come. We thank you for your mercy and grace, Father. We confess together that you would have done no wrong to leave us in our sins, but you, being a merciful God, have provided a Redeemer, Christ Jesus our Lord. We thank you for the gift of faith. We thank you for the gift of the forgiveness of sins. We thank you for the gift of one another, that we are able to walk together in union in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that you would bless my brothers and sisters in Christ, that they would indeed walk as if you were king, and help us to walk together in unity. Lord, preserve our unity, we pray, to the glory of your name. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all of God's people say, Amen. Amen.